The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are ex- elect exiles of the dispersion of in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Katie. Well, um, good morning to you. My name is Stacy Croft. I'm the pastor here at um, Christ Pres Music Row, and would love to get to know you uh, at some point. Uh, if you ever have time to grab coffee or lunch, uh, I'd love to hang out, get to hear your story, and um, and hear uh, help you plug further in the life of our church and uh, even in the city. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a show, um, I, can't, I think it was a year or two ago, that went off the air um, called This Is Us. Have you ever watched that show? Uh, it was a show that I, I have to admit, my wife brought me in on. I got, she started watching it. I came in a little late, and uh, I could not stop watching. I cried all the time in the show. <laughs> uh, it's a really great show. In fact, um, it, was, it was based on a family. Uh, it was talking about, it was a drama uh, on uh, primetime. And um, in fact, uh, our very own uh, Aaron McCabe um, knew one of the writers from her time in LA and uh, said that the writing really was based on the writer's stories. Uh, it was so realistic. And that, I think that was the thing I really enjoyed about it. One of the things that was fascinating was that when you watch it, uh, it would do these things where it would parallel stories and then all of a sudden you'd realize, maybe halfway through or even close to the end, that one of the stories was happening in the past and one was in the present. And you were seeing how the past of this family was making up the current life of what the family lived. And then every now and then, even from that, they would, 
when it would do another scene, you'd see and you'd go, gosh, that looks so different. And it would be from the future. And so they would take these kind of track stories and they would say, the past and, pre- and, and future really drive home and make up uh, this family and what they were living like, how they lived in their present life. And it's interesting because I, I also think even currently, there's so much discussion now about time. Uh, so many, whether it's we want to be out of time, we want to think of another time. Time right now in our current climate is a, is a big deal. And what I loved about that show in real life, it talked about how the past and the future really import into what it meant for this family to be who they were. In um, Peter's letter, and, and we started this last week, thank, thankfully to Dr. Paul Lim, uh, a friend and, and um, who works across the street, delivered this well. As we've talked about maybe the name Peter, which I preached on Easter, you've probably heard that name before, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Peter's a, a very well-known character in the New Testament, a disciple, one of the you know, original 12, OG 12, and apostles who, uh, who really carried on the church. You probably heard his name a lot. But you may have been unf- unfamiliar or you know, less familiar with the letters of Peter, that he wrote two letters in the New Testament. And when you read them, um, and he wrote them in the, about the 60s AD, and what's great about Peter's letters is uh, they're really to the point. He talks about how our theology, what we believe, should impact very quickly how we live. So if you're the kind of person that you come on Sunday and you're like, hey, what do I do Monday morning? When I leave these doors, what's next? Peter is your person. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, um, which is the shortest gospel written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, was written by Mark following Peter. And so if you read it, you can almost hear or see how it's written kind of in a Peter-like style because that gospel's like, you want to know Jesus? Here he is. <laughs> There's no like extrapolation. It's just boom. And so it's great as we look through this, you're going to feel that. In this passage, as he opens up the letter particularly, wants us to understand what God has done in the past and what he holds for us in the future directly affects you right now, how you live as a Christian right now. The people in Peter's time were suffering. They were going through severe trials, not just because it was trials of, you know, just various kinds, but also, as it says, but also because they just were Christians. The surrounding climate was difficult. And so they were constantly asking, is this of benefit to me? Right? I mean, isn't that how we are, especially as very pragmatic Western Christians? Is Christianity really beneficial in the sense that we can talk about the theology? We're a highly educated group, but how does it actually land? How do the, how do the boots on the ground go in our life? And this is where he begins with this. So we're going to look at two things this morning. One is we're going to look at the Lord of our life and, and how he kind of goes before us and, um, and ahead of us. And then we're also going to look at how our life with the Lord. What does it mean for us to like live in the present? What is, how do those things that God has done and, and does currently hold impact how you live right now in this very moment? You know, he starts out of the gate here, and we're going to actually look, and we do this a lot in our church, 
where we look verse by verse, letter by letter, passage by passage. We're, we're a church that believes in the Bible, and we kind of unpack it this way. We're going to look at the, actually the bottom of this passage first, uh, verses 10 through 12, because it really hits on the who of that. It talks about how God has gone before. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things in which angels long to look. One of the things you need to understand that the Bible is and its unpacking is the, the prediction of someone to come, that the whole Old Testament is unfolding over and over. Yes, there are certain books, there are different genres, but over and over it's this layered storyline of that we, we have a messed up world. We are sinful, it is permeated, and who's going to come and fix it? How, how are we going to be rescued? Uh, you know, I've mentioned this all the time, and kids, if you're in the room, maybe you read the Jesus Storybook Bible. One of the greatest things she does when she writes the Jesus Storybook Bible is that thread of who's going to come? Who, who's the rescuer? Who's the one that has us? And she's constantly layering and reminding as in the passages that this prophecy is there. And as you notice, it says it wasn't just this prophecy as we think of like an enlightened, like people kind of standing around and a word in the air. And it's, they inquired, they studied, they looked into. It wasn't just the prophecy they received. They actually studied and looked for who is this Messiah? When I worked at Vanderbilt um, for 10 years, I was a chaplain and a campus minister. Uh, one of the things that was, was wonderful about it, I had a number of friends in different uh, religions and areas, and, and we would have constant discussion and debate. And my Jewish friends particularly and I had a, a lot of discussion around these kind of things. Because oftentimes when we talk about passage, it is very important as you unpack, and particularly for them, and as we talk, would debate in, 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 in fun ways, what are these passages talking about and who? I mean, oftentimes I would find myself in discussions where uh, I would be told or they would say, how do you know this is Jesus? Like, are you sure about that? There are other people who came and talked about these kind of things. And we would talk about certain passages. Isaiah 53 is a major marquee passage in the, in the Old Testament that talks about this suffering one. Who is this one that they searched that they looked for, and that we predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. How do we know that? Well, this is what Jesus also himself, if you notice in the New Testament, is arguing over and over with the religious leaders. It's not that he just likes to argue and that they just have problems. It's the fact that they've been looking for the Messiah, and they yet seem to keep missing him. How are they missing him? Why he is the one who would fulfill this. This is why it's called the good news. This is good news. He's here to present himself. That he's not just the Messiah that comes in in the glories, subsequent glories, but in suffering. And this is why it's really important. Peter wants them to know and us to know that the Messiah is come and fulfilled all of these things that the prophets inquired 
through suffering so that our suffering isn't something that we just go through and God goes, We're gonna, you're gonna make it, it's good, you're gonna make it, but that God before us knew that he would send his son to fulfill the prophecies, not just to be a Messiah who would ride in and show himself in perfection, but would ride in and come and live in his flesh, take up those, as it says, those grieved trials, this predicted the sufferings. And so that's why these passages are so important. They unpack that. That's the good news that even angels long to look into. Uh, the, the Greek there for angels longing to look in is that they were peering in. It's almost like somebody in the back of the room here trying, we're all standing trying to look over and trying to peer and get a good look at what's going on because even the angels don't get to receive the good news like we do. Even these prophets didn't. Before God set it up that we get to be, have the who of this. We get to have the person of Jesus in the good news. And it says this in Jumping back up to verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope. That is the good news. But when we sometimes hear that word born again, it's not like language we use a lot. I remember I was in high school. I had a, a high school teacher my uh, junior year who had a pen, it said, born again humanist on it. And uh, some of you in this room may be familiar with humanism and what that is. Humanism is really not necessarily a religious thing. It, it has some ties in the past, but in our current climate, humanism is that way of like really bolstering and upholding humanity. We need to do our part. And I think in some ways he was uh, having this born again humanism, maybe a shot at the religiousness of uh, a use of that word, but most of the time what I appreciated was he's drawing out that many of us think of born again as this experience that we're supposed to have. That we're supposed to, when, it, when we talk about being born again, that, 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 that's kind of that odd language. Somebody says, I'm a born again Christian. You're like, okay, what does that really mean? <laughs> does that mean you had a moment where you felt like you were a Christian? Does that mean something happened? What, what Peter's trying to get at here is to say it's not about the message that hits you. It's about the fact of what happened. Uh, this is why in, in John chapter 3, and, and you know in, in football games or baseball games, in the end zone or in the outfield, there'll be that John 3.16 sign. Somebody holds up inevitably, right? And where that comes from is a, is a passage of the Bible. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that whole passage is about one of the biggest religious leaders named Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus, a religious leader who unpacks and has studied carefully even what the prophets have given him, and comes to Jesus and says, what is this eternal life you're talking about? And guess where Jesus goes with it? He says, well, in John chapter three, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response is this, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, you are the one who's studying and even teaching these things, and you do not know? And he's not trying to be a jerk to Nicodemus. He's trying to say, you have to be born again. It's not, an ev it's not some sort of a, a, a moment of experience. It's the event. It's the event of the, of, of the resurrection itself. Born again to a living hope. 
When we talk about Easter and what hope really is, it's not an ethereal thing. And I know we say this a lot, but I, I really want to come back to this because when we talk about hope, it has to be more than just a message. The good news has to be something that imports and actually impacts our life. That God has done something. It's not an experience, it's an event, it's a work of God, and it's a living hope. So that our hope, and, and, and as many have even thought about before, I mean, gosh, Freud, was it Freud who said that Christianity could be a wish fulfillment? And, and for many of us, maybe it feels that way even though we might disagree with that and say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Does Christianity land more in a wishing kind of religion to you rather than a reality? But what a living hope is, is different. A living hope means it's actually alive now. It's in a person who actually went through death, through where hope itself dies, which is where we encounter. We, when we meet death or are around it. That's where we feel the most loss. And yet what Peter's saying is it is through that it's a living hope that not even death can squash hope itself. And itself is still alive. A living hope that draws us up into itself that is now alive. Here's what's amazing. Jesus, we're talking about him. He's alive right now. The Bible is saying that he is no longer dead. He's not, we may not see him, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but he lives even now. And because of that, and what God has done by raising him from the dead, and we have this living hope, it drives us to what we have, right? It says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So what the living hope is drives us to also jump fast forward like in a this is us type style. What's the future story? The future story is our inheritance. A lot of you uh, know that um, we've been living in a, a rental house for the last number of years and uh, because our, our home flooded some time ago. But there's a, a kind of an amazing story about this. Uh, some of our dearest friends that we've known since we, gosh, lived in Nashville, basically. I can't, we almost can't, these are the kind of friends we've known so long and are so close to, we almost can't remember when we became friends. <laughs> uh, they actually lived across the street from this rental house uh, for a time. And the, uh, the, the man who's uh, the husband, friend, um, was such a good neighbor. He used to just love his neighbors really well. The woman that lived in this house uh, was an older woman, and, and he would just go care for her, just love on her as he would all his neighbors. I remember walking through the neighborhood with this friend of mine. He was like, oh, yeah, so-and-so, I've been through that house, been through that house. And he's just that kind of person that loves well. well. When this woman passed away, uh, this house was given to him as an inheritance. Because of the kindness and love that he showed towards her and how much she loved him. And what's so profound that we're getting the benefit of this inheritance, even now. Um, even, even the fact that, that we get to hear these stories as he comes in and he goes, oh yeah, I remember being in this home. And it's more than just a rental home to him. It's something that 
is an inheritance that's given, it's a gifting. See, the difference here in what an inheritance is over a treasure is that it's given over being found. See, when Peter would have written this, this would have triggered in their mind the promised land. That was that land that God had promised Israel. I'm gonna give you this inheritance that you will have in your life. Be where you live, where you're secure. And what's incredible about it is we get to benefit based on what Jesus has done. The inheritance is secure for us because he has secured that relationship between God and us based on his life. And it is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept. It is imperishable. It doesn't perish or wither. It cannot be laid waste. Uh, We lived in Jackson, Mississippi for three years and Many of you have some Mississippi connections. In fact, we had a crawfish boil yesterday. Uh, A men's crawfish boil was awesome. And I still to this day believe that people from Mississippi make the best crawfish. So they actually were the chefs. And thank you to you guys, whoever did that. Um, But one of the nicknames historically for Jackson, Mississippi, and you may have heard this, is called Chimneyville. Uh, In fact, there's still a restaurant in Jackson, a barbecue place called Chimneyville Barbecue. And the reason is, is during uh, the, the Civil War, Jackson was burned a number of times, at least three times. And when it did, the way the homes were built, all that stood after all the rubble, after everything came to the ground, were chimney after chimney after chimney. It looked like a forest of chimneys, just brick and stone chimneys. And so they called it Chimneyville. And what Peter's using is that kind of language. He's literally saying in the negative that everything that's coming down, everything around you that you may experience that feels like it is being completely destroyed and utterly in chaos, this inheritance that you have in Jesus, that is yours, that is secure, that is safe, it will not wither, it will not be laid waste, it will always remain. No matter what goes down around you. It will always stay. It's undefiled. It cannot be spoiled. It's not like when you buy a car. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. It's not like when you buy a car and you, right when you drive it out of the gates off the lot, what happens? Depreciate. You know, you're like, oh God, now this thing's like half what it was worth before. Nothing depreciates. It's not like the milk and the, now this, is a, this would be an interesting experiment. The milk in the fridge for a lot of us. Okay, there are two kinds of people in this world. The expiration date on there, there are people in this room that are like, that's a suggestion and you sniff the milk and there are other people who are like, it's past the date, you throw it away. Now, I know there's some of you that are very much the suggestion people. Like, I am not throwing away that milk unless I have to. But it doesn't spoil. That's the word, that's the Greek. Undefiled is that it will not spoil. There's time, think about this. Time cannot touch it. It cannot change it. There's nothing in your life in terms of time, whatever you see, the length, breadth of time that can change this inheritance. It is yours, kept, held, and it's unfading. It's unfading. It's perennial. Just like everybody was freaking out this morning. Oh my gosh, it's 30-something degrees in April again. 
We just went, every agricultural institution in Nashville was flooded yesterday with people buying flowers and stuff without really looking, oh, it won't be that bad. Uh Uh-oh, is it going to freeze again? I'm going to lose everything, you know. Spent all our time digging this weekend for these things, and now is it going to freeze? It doesn't fade. There's nothing about it. Nothing can touch it. Nothing changes the value it has kept. One of the most beautiful things I heard over the last few weeks was when Britton Wood, who's a pastor and, uh, with RUF, he, he did the call to worship for uh, the worship service uh, for Covenant the first Sunday um, after the tragedy happened at Covenant. And the thing he said in the call to worship that I loved, he stood up and he began by saying, my friends, the world has changed, but God has not. There is a lot that has changed, but some things have not. And that is more true than we have felt ever. And it will continue to be. So much has changed, and it will feel that way for the rest of our lives. But some things have not, and particularly who God is and what that means for us and how we love one another well and how he loves us by going before us and after us. And that should drive home how we live now. If God is our living hope, he's not not just a hope, he's a living hope that has gone before us and our inheritance is undefiled. It cannot spoil, it cannot fade and that is our bookends. How does that determine us now? And this is where Peter goes immediately. Two things practically, this is how it's gonna land in us. One is, how does it impact your joy? And two is, what does it do to your faith? Your joy and your faith. Look at, look at, when he says this, immediately he moves from this imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then guess where he goes? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through tested fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Joy is what he says. And here's why why joy. Joy is different than happiness. Sometimes we can think of joy as something that's supposed to push out the suffering and difficulty, but what he's saying here through, when he says Though for a little while, he's saying, this inheritance, what you have in Christ is timeless. What you're living in in this suffering has a time limit. It will expire. And what joy is, is God's way of not just, hey, let your joy outweigh your sadness. It actually is something that permeates in it. At the end of today, we're going to sing, and I wanna, I'm making this known to you so you can think about it. We're going to sing one of our favorite songs, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. You know, oh, love that will not let I won't say We'll sing it together in a minute. <laughs> but, it, but what's great about that song, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but when it goes, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, 
Uh, oh, joy that seeketh me through faith. Oh, light. Every one of those words is capitalized because it's meant to be a noun. And the person that wrote this song, George Matheson, who wrote this, when he wrote this in the 19th century, he was starting to go blind. And he was engaged to a woman. And as he revealed to her that he was going to be blind throughout their marriage, she broke off the engagement. And to his heartache and pain, you can imagine, some of you may have gone through something similar to this. Him living with that longing to be married, longing to have. And on the eve, his sister got engaged sometime later. And on the eve of her wedding night, he wrote this hymn. And think about how it starts. Oh, love that will not let me go. There may be all sorts of loves in your life that feel like have let you go, but oh, love that will not let me go. And here's the line that I think instructs us and probably drawn directly from Peter's language. Listen, hear this. Oh, joy, capital J, that seeks me through pain. I dare not close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. What is so profound that, that Matheson is pulling us into that's pulled right out of Peter? What does he say? It, it, it's rejoice through these things. Joy permeates. Joy, joy doesn't just, just talk about, look for the silver lining. It says, Suffering and grief makes more room for you to understand how loved and cherished you are. And I will tell you, in the past few weeks, I have never felt more difficulty and yet more love and holiness and togetherness all at once. And I'm sure you felt that in other ways individually. I have too. But it is incredible to know that is what joy is. It says this, I dare not close my heart to thee. I want to ask this question. Is the living hope and the inheritance you have pressing in on you so much that when you encounter any trial of various kinds, as Peter asks, does it cause you to shut down, to close your heart? Or does it drive you to say, I must have more. Oh, love, that will not let me go. Because that's where it gets to the spots. That's where joy can be unnerving. It can hit you in ways and places that you're like, how can joy upend and even get into my suffering in a way I did not understand? And it's because the true joy of God is not just a message. It's the one he sends that the joy enters into the suffering. That's the difference. Jesus is the joy that comes into our suffering to permeate every bit of it. That he seeks us through pain, not in spite of it, through it, to make more love. You know what's beautiful about what he says here? It's not just that he finishes by saying this. He says, 
Though you, in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He takes the joy to the next level and says, how does this impact your faith? The Bible doesn't do this often, but there are moments in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews does this, and here to where it defines a term for us, what faith is. Though you do not see him, you still love him. Though you do not see him, you still believe in him. Faith is what? Without seeing. That faith is something that you do not see, and yet you still believe. Faith is a response of the heart, and it acts on what God has done. Faith is an inaction. Faith responds. And that's where Peter goes here. This is what he's saying is that we may not see him. This is an interesting thing to think about. And it may make you go, huh. We just had Easter and preached all about the resurrection and what we believe that God has done. And yet we've never seen the resurrection. We've never actually seen Jesus. And yet how can Peter say we have something more sure Because he's showing his cards to say what faith is, is, isn't about you being able to see it all. It's about what he has done and that he has told you. He has come to you. This is why Jesus over and over, the religious leaders go, you show us a sign and we'll believe. And you know when he says back to them? No. In fact, if I showed you a resurrection itself, it would not make your faith. We are so, and I, look, I will be the first to tell you, I supply my faith with sight so much. It doesn't mean sight can't help your faith, but I often, and I know you do too, look to my sight to be my faith. And yet what Peter is saying is faith doesn't depend, faith is the response of the heart. And yet we do this in every other place. This isn't just a religious thing. There was an article uh, even years ago, and, and not a Christian article, an article in the Atlantic about food and diet that talked about this. Listen, this is fascinating. It's called Eating Toward Immortality. Let's just show you that we do this everywhere in our life. Says, this is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You're not merely disputing facts. You're pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. This is about food. You are poking at their life raft. But if their diet proves to be the one true diet, all capital, yours must not be. If they're right, you're wrong. This is why the diet culture seems so religious. People adhere to a dietary faith in the hope that they will be saved. That if they're good enough, pure enough in their eating, they can keep illness and mortality at bay and pursuit of life everlasting always requires a leap of faith. Peter's only being consistent with what is the way that we view faith. It's in everything we do. And yet faith has a reality that's been revealed in God. And it's active and passive. Look, this table itself proves this very thing. This table says that in order to come to this table... You have to have faith knowing that this is body and blood. Jesus did this in space and time on coordinates on a map, but we can do that all day long. 
But unless you know and come to him believing and yet love him, I mean, that's, that's one thing I, I want to ask. God says to us all the time how much he loves us. How much does your heart actually stop in the moment and say, Lord, I love you. And I don't mean that just in an emotional way. Where do you get so struck that you've sat in how your living hope and your inheritance has driven in the fact that he has come to you, that our faith isn't our faith because we put him on the throne? Our faith is our faith because he is on the throne. And how your faith grows by coming forward isn't that you get you earned it. It's passive too. Because when you leave here, by faith you trust that God is growing in you and he's at work in you even when you can't. Especially when you can't. That's what we trust. We trust that thy faith, this table, changes you in a way that you and I can't reach. Because our God in heaven and earth. One day, as Peter says, as he says the end of this, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of faith, one day we will have no need for faith. This is a taste that one day your faith will be no longer needed because guess what? We will live in his presence forever. And guess what? Our faith will decrease in need and what will increase? Our joy. Our joy will be through the roof, inexpressible. Just as Peter is saying, the taste that we get from it now. Praise be to God for his work. Let's stand together.